You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. Welcome back to Sprogcast with me, Mark Harris, and with Karen Hall. This is episode 46 in which we chat to Maddie McMahon, an old friend of the show, about motherhood and writing books. We are delighted to be sponsored by Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition, yoga and fiction at pinterandmartin.com. We also now collect sponsorship at patreon.com slash where you can sign up for badges, t-shirts and other exciting rewards. You can support the show from as little as one US dollar per month, though if you can stretch to two dollars, we'll send you a badge. Um, and I did write in the script an apology to Emma Andrews that your badge isn't on its way yet, but I managed to get to the post office on Saturday and so now it is. Thank you so much for sponsoring Sprogcast. Oh yeah, the t-shirts are on the way, by the way, for those that sent quick. Yes, I don't think everybody who sent us a question has contacted us with an address so if you are still waiting for a t-shirt you need to tell us where to send it oh yeah and you're going to remind me to take one to Belfast when I go yes you're taking one to Belfast for Sinead yes I am so how are you then I'm very well been very busy marking essays this last week um by the time this comes out I think that the results will be almost ready to be published have you received any bribes or anything Sadly not. Oh, <laughs> what a shame. <laughs> and and how was Christmas in the sun? Oh, it was amazing. It was wonderful. I would totally do that every single year if I could. It yeah. was a bit fraught because three days before we were supposed to fly, that was the day that Gatwick was closed because of the drones. Oh. And my dad was traveling that day. Oh, no. For his Christmas holiday. Yeah, he went home and didn't have his holiday. Oh. I know, isn't that sad? But we managed to go. So we had our Christmas at home on the 23rd and opened all our presents. And then 24th, we travelled and arrived. And they had like a gala dinner in the hotel, which is a really, really big international buffet. And Christmas Day, we spent most of the day lying by a pool and occasionally going, what's Christmas? (laughs) Here we are, lying by a pool in the sun. Having a mul- cocktail. Mulled wine. <laughs> we had mulled wine and ginger biscuits because the resort we were at was um, very, um, it, a lot of the clientele are Swedish. And there was a, a big kind of Scandinavian feel to it. It was really nice. And Lan- Lanzarote is so beautiful. Lanzarote is lovely. Yeah. yeah. Sure. So did you did you do any reading over Christmas? By I, did, I, read, I did, I read. I did, I read. I read Milkman, the um, which I think won the Booker Prize. That's um, oh, I thought it's not a breastfeeding a book, novel. Then. No, no, nothing like, <laughs> <laughs> and a couple of other novels as well. Nice. And well, you, um, you were just moaning off air that you haven't read many novels. No, I read three over Christmas, and that's been it. And my son has just my twelve-year-old son has um, read for the first time the Secret Diary of Adrian Mole. Yeah, is that, that good? Has been hilarious because of the questions. Like, what what are records, Mum? Why do they have <laughs> sleeves? What what is the arm of the stereo? <laughs> what are, are we, flares, uh, Mum? Uh, you're, you're you're a lot younger than me, and and yet uh, you know these kind of discussions are funny, aren't they? 
Hilarious. How about you? How are you doing, Mark? Me? I'm doing all right. I, I, again, I've had some periods of illness, um, but you know, just virally things. But Christmas was fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, lots of fun, lots of family. I think I had all 10 grandchildren uh, together on Christmas Eve, which sounds delightful, but it was bedlam. <laughs> it doesn't. I think that sounds like bedlam. <laughs> it was bedlam. God, it was it was wrapping paper everywhere because we opened presents on Christmas Eve because it was the only day we were all going to be together. So, But it was a fun time indeed. I'm very glad to hear that. And you're off to Belfast soon. I am. I'm doing a debrief day and then a two-day three-step rewind training. And then I'm going again later in the year for the Positive Birth Conference. And we're talking about doing an NLP for birth practitioner training in Belfast this year. So going to be in Belfast a lot, Karen. You are. Can you get me into the Positive Birth Conference? Yeah. You never know. They might let us co-host. That'd be fun. Yeah, that'd be nice. But yeah, that'd be really cool. It'd be like um, yeah, it'd be like a positive birth conference with us co-hosting. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, we should do some of this podcast. Do you know yes. what? I listened to a new podcast recently. I'm not going to name it because I didn't like it because they spent and it was one person. It wasn't two people talking, which can work, but sometimes doesn't. And she spent probably the first 15 minutes just going on about the minutiae of her day and I'm really worried that we're doing that a bit so we're doing that a bit but you do give us listener feedback if you think we're wittering on too much please tell us and we will stop definitely and and you'll be editing mercilessly anyway yeah yeah we'll, we'll do some editing so so what's been in the news Karen well you posted I think um an article a couple of weeks ago now, the one about banned words for midwives. Yeah, I got a little bit of flack on the page because it's an oh, old I saw article. That. Was it? Oh, I didn't pick up that it was old. Yeah, I got. There's a bit of flack in the comments, but someone sent it to me because it turned up in a Birmingham local publication. Yeah, don't give me that. It's a dated fourth of January. It's oh fun. right. Well, well, those people that made comments, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but what they are perhaps saying is that this is not a new subject. No, of course it ain't. And, and, and let's be honest, most of the subjects we cover aren't new because we... We're talking cover... about birth. <laughs> it's exactly. more ancient. Yeah, and the use of language and its power upon women's experience. We, we know the impact of uh, throwaway comments and stuff. I, I don't think we can talk about it enough. No, and I think the reason it keeps coming up is because it's continually relevant. Yeah, you know so language on a day-to-day basis is influencing the experience of birthing women and their partners full stop so we can't talk about it enough and this article is in the birmingham mail but it came up in several newspapers at the beginning of january well i think i think the issue around banning words is a bit ridiculous and is probably clickbait yeah um Language occurs spontaneously. You know, for the large part of our communicating with others, we're not thinking about what we're going to say. It's just, it's it's coming up from a deeply unconscious place. Um, so banning is not going to work. No, and it's much more about changing the whole culture. I, the problem with talking about culture like it's separate from, from us is widespread. 
you know, it's like I go to student conferences lots and people often say the culture's the problem, it's the culture that's the problem. And I kind of get where they're coming from. But of course, you can't separate individuals from the culture because culture doesn't exist as a thing. It's held in place by the languaging of people inside that institution. So you could argue that culture is language plus a set of rules that are implied uh, and either implied explicitly or implicit, you know, implicitly. I can't tell if you're agreeing or disagreeing. <laughs> well, no, no, the, the, no, there is such a thing as culture in the context of how it affects our behaviour and the way we're being in a certain environment. But culture itself is just the language we use and the rules we are obeying. Mm. And what we're saying is that if, if those things are changed, yes, then the overall output is more positive. Yeah, it is. But it, cha it changes in a way the minute I open my mouth. Everything changes the minute you open your mouth. <laughs> but you, you understand what I'm saying. So, so how do we change culture? Well, it, it starts with personal reflection, doesn't it? Mm, yeah. It starts with me asking myself the question, how does speaking this way affect how I experience the world? Yeah, so you actually it seems like you've got to go through that process of questioning yourself. Yes. Mm. There's, I don't think there's any widespread shift in culture until the man in the mirror changes or the woman in the mirror changes, to quote that well-known uh, musical artist. <laughs> You know, mm. all, all cultural change starts with me. Yeah, and the, I think that there is a problem when you come across people who are who don't seem to have that reflective capacity. It does make it, you know, difficult to make this kind of change. Yeah, it, but it does. For, for each individual experience yeah. with a person who doesn't think, how do those words sound when I, when somebody else hears them? No, it's true. And, and, and of course, the the rules implicit and explicit inside an organization are, are profoundly powerful you know it, it's why I remember going back to midwifery doing a return to practice and working with students at the end of their training you know that had, had all of the stuff that we talk about in terms of language and all the rest of it and were still role modeling certain things in the culture that we wouldn't think were appropriate hmm an, an interesting um, Facebook memory came up for me today saying um, tonight I taught my first ever breastfeeding class and I looked at that and I've, I've shared it because I'm proud that it was 10 years ago today um, but I would never say taught or class <laughs> no, right what would you say now I facilitated an antenatal session yeah very different yeah my, my brother on Facebook is merrily taking the out of my <laughs> yeah, I'm not the same person I was last week, let alone 10 years ago. So not there's quite. there's always going to be an evolution in our experience of the world, isn't there? Mm. So, you know, I get that. If I looked at my posts from 20, well, 15 years ago, I'd be embarrassed. Don't look at them, Mark. I think I it's don't. for the best. I just thank, I, I just thank God, uh, however you perceive him or her, that I wasn't online when I was a right-wing, evangelical, charismatic pastor. We all do. Frankly. <laughs> so, um, I, I like the article in as much as it raises awareness, at least, and, and maybe some people will be prompted towards self-reflection. 
I don't think we should ever stop talking about how we talk. And if we stopped talking, we wouldn't have a podcast. So there you go. Yeah. I posted something I thought was a bit controversial. Go on, what was that? Uh, it, it's a video that people were unsure whether it was real or not. And it's titled, These Parents Are Superheroes. And it's a, a, a woman and her partner driving to hospital. Now, my oh, question yeah. is, my question is, why were they recording this? But she definitely seems to give birth in the car, driving to the hospital. She starts off with leggings on. And then, of course, she has to uh, divest herself of her leggings. And, and gives birth in the car, in the passenger seat. Yeah, I can see the contractions. <laughs> People were asking me, is this real? And uh, I think I think it is. Difficult to fake. Uh, very difficult to fake. And in a way, as I watched it, I, I found it very moving. You know, just how spontaneous the whole thing was. and And how... Although her expressions of discomfort and pain, you know, some might find distressing, um, just the organicness of it all, how the baby is just born. <laughs> mm. It's lovely. But, yeah, the question of why on earth are they videoing this? I have no idea. That, that's why I think people sent it to me, because they thought it was a bit of a scam, you know. But I can't see how it could be, because the birth appears to me very real. I th- and he's undoing his seatbelt as he's still driving. I think you should probably stop the car. Wow. I, I, I think I, that her being in the car with her seatbelt undone and him still driving and at the same time as driving, he's actually trying to help her take her leggings off. That seems like a dangerous situation. Anyway, I thought it, I thought it, I, I thought it was lovely and I was moved by, by it. Uh, but I also thought it would uh, raise some discussion and feedback. But it hasn't yet. Fascinating. Well, maybe people will go and have a look at it now. So I posted an article about um, Jasmine Paris, the mother who did the ultra race, the ultra marathon, 268 mile race. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw some stuff on that. Taking breaks every now and then to express and broke the course record on the Pennine Way by more than 12 hours. 12 hours? How cool is that? So she was running for 83 hours. And I have got a little special thing for us because um, one of my NCT colleagues, Sally Golightly, is an ultra runner and she's agreed to talk to me later. We haven't got this yet um, about her experience of running ultras. So I will be plopping that in here. So I want to say hello to Sally Golightly. And I, the reason I am speaking to you, Sally, today is because you recommended um, on the back of the article about Jasmine Paris as one of our very own NCT ultra runners. Yeah, I still really don't think of myself as a runner. So that's quite weird. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I do run. And, and <laughs> I have done a long race. I have done an ultra run. Yeah. <laughs> what was your longest? 52.6 miles. You've run 52.6 miles and you don't think of yourself as a runner? No, I still don't think of myself as a proper runner. No, I think if I can do it, if I can keep moving for that length of time and for that distance, then anybody can do it. And I had to do some training to get there. I'm not sure if I would agree with you. I keep, well, I did keep trying. I've stopped now. I hate running. 
Yeah, I've, I've got to really trick myself. And I, I do think the hardest thing for running is getting your shoes on, putting your shoes on and getting out of the door. Yeah, it, it can take me for, it can take me 40 minutes to get my shoes on to go for a half an hour run. I've got to really trick myself into doing it. But one of the things that really kind of keeps me going is um, I have a little mantra and I just tell myself you never regret a run. Mm. You know, as soon as you come back, you feel better after you've done it. It's and, true. Um, and, it, and it's true. It's so true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you might not always enjoy it. You might not always enjoy it when you're out there. But um, yeah, when you come back, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's great. So how long have you been running? Um, So I started, I had to think about this when I knew you were phoning. Um, I started in 2016. Um, I was, I ran a little bit before I got pregnant with my first child in 2009. But um, my midwife, my midwife appointment, she said, how long have you been running? It's a few weeks. And so she said, stop. Mm. And so I stopped for seven years. And (laughs) do you think that's what she meant? (laughs) Yeah, possibly. I I just, I just stopped. Um, After my first child, I um, suffered quite badly with, um, with emotions after birth and um maybe when he was about 18 months old I started again um but again circumstances led me to 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 stop quite quite quickly afterwards um and then I really wanted another baby and my husband said you want to you want to run a marathon I had really positive birth experiences really yeah really amazing transforming birth experiences and he said you you'll feel that high if you ran a marathon and um I didn't believe him, but I started running again. And how I started was I couldn't do f- running on the flat. So I, I've got a hill around the back of my house and I walked up the hill and I ran down. And then I just did that. And I did that kind of hamster wheel two or three times a week. And then I gradually built it up and I gradually built it up so that I extended it and then went for longer and longer runs. And um, about 18 months after I started, I entered um, my first marathon on my only marathon and um, I did it to raise money for my son's school so that put so much pressure on me that I raised mm. nearly a thousand pounds for my oh, son's wow. school library <laughs> and I was really slow I ran with everybody who was um, in fancy dress or they were having a bad run <laughs> um, but I just had a laugh with it I just yeah I enjoyed it and um, I yeah I raised the money and 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 that was great and that was in 2000 and 17 so in September 2017 I did that and then a couple of months after I went to like a women's a women's weekend uh, um, for, for running in introduction to, to running and I met two women in the pub and they said they'd entered lakes in a day the following year and that was the 50 miler um, and it was running from north lakes to south lakes it was 12,000 feet um, I live near the Three Peaks, the Yorkshire Three Peaks, and in my head it was it was double. It, it's just a bit more than double that in terms of height and and distance, but all the all the hills, all all the feet of climb are, are in the first first kind of three fifths of the race. This is your rationale for signing up, isn't it? It's only yeah. a little bit more, and the, all the difficult bit is at the beginning. Yeah, I've I've I've, I've walked. I, I walked. This, I've walked the Three Peaks. It's double that, um, yeah. I'd, and 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 these two women were doing it, and I had yeah, I had a word with my husband because he does a lot of lot of ultra running, and he said, "Would you be scared? Would you would you be absolutely terrified on the on the start line?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Do it then." Oh, <laughs> so um, so I'd uh, I'd done a couple of like half marathons. I entered a, a mountain marathon in the summer. 
um, that was spread over two two days. So it's a bit of navigation as well. And then I entered I entered Lakes in a day and and got a coach. And I, I chose a coach that I chose somebody who who I'm a little bit scared of and completely in awe of in, in terms of her running achievements. And um, yeah, and she she did me a coaching plan and the first time I went out she said to, she sent me a message and said I've seen that you've done eight miles on the canal which is great but next time get on a hill yeah <laughs> and uh, I just knew that she would like but she would put the pressure on but in a supportive way mm. um and so I just I just stuck to I just stuck to the plans and gradually up to my mileage um until yeah till the end of September and then as it came I felt absolutely terrified and just thought it's it's way bigger than um, than I imagined and just lost my head a little bit with it and thought I'd made a mistake had quite bad anxiety mm. um and and the weather was forecast was was pretty rubbish it was it was um it, I think there'd been a storm that weekend and it, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't dying down and I just felt like I was in the like I couldn't I couldn't not run and I couldn't like the thought of been on the start line terrified me so I messaged my coach and just said I don't like I don't know what to do and she just said if I don't feel like that if I don't feel that before a race then um then I worry that I haven't done enough training just get yourself to the start line and it'll it'll be all right and so I, I got myself there and um yeah and just started and then I just I didn't stop <laughs> just kept wow. going well done but, yeah thank you the thing I find hardest with running is finding time to train for a longer run. Yeah, I um, I think I think it's a discipline. I think I think looking after yourself and self care is a discipline, and it's got to come above everything else. And when I first of all started, like the little runs, my youngest was at preschool, and he was in preschool for like three mornings a week, and I knew that for those mornings I had a decision: did I clean the house and it really annoys me that I, that I say this because I think you would never hear a male ultra runner mm. saying this and that that really frustrates me but it felt like my reality was I clean the house I prepare something for tea or I go for a run and I knew which I felt better doing yeah. I, is, is going for a run and so that's what I did for the three mornings that he was a pre school I would make sure that I got out and sometimes it meant picking him up in my running gear like coming straight from the run but yeah. that's that's what I did um and I just kept thinking I won't regret it I won't regret it if I get out yeah. and I found that I, there's a shifting point at which you when you start you count the runs and then you count the days in between the runs so you count the days in which you haven't run and that's when you you've got the kind of tipping point to you're a runner because you're counting when you haven't been out there you are then. You've come full circle and proved that you are a runner. Yeah. Sally, thank you. It was really nice thank to you, talk Karen. to you. All right, you're welcome. So it's really interesting to talk to Sally about how she manages the different aspects of, um, you know, something as time consuming as training for ultramarathons and running them um, as and her other the other demands on her world. And that kind of leads us in quite nicely to thinking about motherhood generally. And to discuss this, we've got Maddie McMahon, whose book, Why Motherhood Matters, is just out. And I talked to her about both the content of the book and the process of writing it. 
So I'm welcoming back Maddie McMahon, who was our first ever guest on Sprogcast. Um, and she's here today to talk about her new book, um, which is Why Mothering Matters from Pinter and Martin, and anything else she wants to talk about as well. I've just told her she can do that. Hi, Maddie. Hello, Karen. Good morning. Good morning and Happy New Year. You too. So you've got a new book. I have, yeah, new baby. You're not producing them as fast as uh, Amy. No, no. Amy's got a, a whole litter, hasn't she? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm uh, hugely admiring of her ability to push them out. But um, yeah, my births are, are longer and more painful. Oh, that's really sad. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure you can see a positive to that. Well, yeah, absolutely. You you know, you're proud that you actually managed to get it out in the end, definitely. Um, but yeah, this one had a, a, a seriously challenging transition where I did feel like I couldn't do it. Well, what was the challenge? Um, I think because um, I needed it to be very personal it is very personal it's it's almost a story of uh my evolution as a feminist uh and so like anything when you're writing something personal when it dawns on you that it's going to be public that's scary mm. Mm. this is your absolute passion as well oh it, yeah it absolutely is. I think when you've spent, like me, 15 years up close with mothers, observing them, you know, that the the tiny little interactions between them and their babies, um, and, you know, like you, spending a lot of time talking about feeding, watching feeding, listening to how they feel about feeding and babies and motherhood and that transition that almost identity crisis that you go through when you become a mother mm. um it's just you know it's like being a scientist you know that close observation I had all of these these stories going around in my mind uh all of these observations and thoughts and feelings about how it is to be a mother in the 21st century um, and I started just getting angrier and angrier and on one level the book is a rant because the injustices that I see around me every day when I go to work I, I needed to pour that out pour out those feelings and that feels quite exposing yeah it yeah it does it does because you know obviously I could be uh, accused of, um, of being very negative and there are dark moments in the book I think when um, you actually look at at the discrimination that I mean, obviously you know women experience discrimination all day every day all over the world but when you become a mother that discrimination that's another layer on top. Mm, yeah and it's really clear and that does come across and the, one of the things I wrote as I was jotting stuff down reading it was this is gloriously and profoundly feminist yeah yeah you know I think it is a, you know, on one level it's a political treatise mm. um but yeah on another level it is it is very personal and it isn't um it isn't an organized political treatise it isn't a um 
it isn't a call to arms it isn't a plan for action um it is literally my musings on on what i i i've noticed working as a doula and a breastfeeding counselor all of these years mm. um, so there isn't a huge amount of organization i just wanted uh to put my thoughts down on paper and to give voices to as many women as i could so there's you know there are a lot of of mother's voices in the book there are yes and it's nice because that that kind of colors it all in and broadens it because you it you're you're sort of talking about it as a really personal thing personal journey and about your personal journey but there are many journeys in this book mm. yes i hope that that if mothers read it that they you know they find themselves in it Mm, yeah, it, it's kind of like a, a very modernisation of um, Naomi Stadlin's books. Obviously, I have to admit to being hugely influenced. I mean, she's amazing. All the best people are. <laughs> <laughs> her, her books are, you know, been incredibly formative for me. You know, as I started out in my doula journey. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely influenced by her ability to to observe those little interactions between mothers and their children. Yeah, that that came through in a really good way, not in a sort of oh, this is just Naomi Stadlin all over again. It was much more kind of oh, I can see where you started, mm. but good. I'm also seeing the journey. Excellent. I'm glad about Thank you, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, Maddie. I enjoyed reading this book. I really lo loved all the metaphor. Oh. Did you know you were doing this? Um, well, I think that's something else that I wanted to achieve because obviously when I wrote um, Why Doulas Matter, I think I was still trying to find my voice and I wasn't very confident and I felt like I needed to write a very factual book. But my aspirations have always been uh, to be, I suppose what I privately call a proper writer, in inverted commas. Um, you know, for, for writing to be art as well as information. Um, and so that was an aspiration for this book was that I actually, you know, that I found my authentic voice. Um, and I've always been, you know, a huge lover of literature. That's what I studied at university. Um, and it's always been my ambition to, to write a novel and maybe I'll do that before I die. Um, but I wanted this writing to be, to have elements of poetry. Have you? How many novels have you got under your bed, dusty novels? Um, I've got a few. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Never to see the light of day. Yeah, exactly. Yes. My my particular favourite. I have to tell you this one is breastfeeding as a matter of special scientific interest. <laughs> You like that? I loved it. I can remember <laughs> writing a level five essay in which I began with a comparison of, of like the breastfeeding mother as a, a small rowing boat in the shipping lane, and I. I was like, oh, this is even better than that. <laughs> <laughs> I did battle with that one. I rewrote that couple of paragraphs uh, six or seven times because, yeah, it had to, like, it kept getting too complicated. 
but yeah, I'm, I'm, you're the first person I've spoken to who has noticed that element to the writing and appreciated it. So yeah, thank you so much. Oh, it's just really nice to read. When you think about writing a book about mothering, it's just such a big and frankly woolly subject that it's really hard to know where you would even begin and how you would structure it and how you would make it concise enough to be published. And there's something about the way you've approached it that worked. You've yeah. distilled this immensely complex su- subject down. You know, there's still scope for another 16 books on it. But <laughs> of course there is. And, you know, that was one of the reasons why it was such a painful baby to birth because, you know, to to put boundaries, limitations of 40,000 words to the most immense subject uh, and not to rewrite Vanessa Olleranshaw's book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was tough. So how did you prioritize and and decide where you were going to go with this one well I think I wanted to kind of just generally give uh, a little bit of shape by using a journey you know through pregnancy and birth and and you know those early years um, because that's what I see every day as a as a doula and a breastfeeding counsellor anyway so that's you know the part of the journey that that I see the most but you know my kids are almost grown up now so I also have that perspective I can look back along the whole path of motherhood um, and see that you know actually um, there's discrimination against mothers all the way along you know just because your kids have started school now doesn't mean that the challenges are over mm. um so yeah so I, th- I think I I, I I wanted to give the book a little bit of shape like that so that new mothers who are reading it could sort of see that this is a journey that they're that they're going on mm, particularly in that really early stage those first few weeks where you can't see forwards and you don't know that, the, that this whatever they're experiencing at the time it's going to change and it's it's all I don't know if I can even say change for the better because they yeah. might not be in a bad place but it's it's certainly going to change definitely going to change but I also hope that um what I managed to do is for mothers to read it and so and say to themselves oh it's not just me then mm. Because that, I'm sure that you get the same thing. You know, women will uh, say something to you um, thinking that they're alone. They're the only one whose baby doesn't sleep or they're the only one who um, is trying to work out what they want to do with their lives now. They're the only one who doesn't really understand who they are now that they've had a baby. Um, And, you know, we all go through a, a period of, transition where we're working out what our new identity is um, and battling with the hurdles that society puts up against us now that we're do you think that if somebody read this during pregnancy that they would grasp it very good question uh i have had feedback from some pregnant mothers uh to say that they found it really useful I don't know whether it completely lands until you've had the baby. Mm, so maybe having read it beforehand, but it doesn't really hit home until they're in that place. 
maybe you could just read the chapter, the early chapters on sort of, you know, that birth. <laughs> and then say the rest of it so you had the baby. I don't know. And trying to not get too angry, but suitably angry, so that you're <laughs> fully assertive as you go into this thing. Assertive and empowered. Those are the words we like, aren't they? Indeed. <laughs> you wanted to read a passage. So, yes, just a little extract. Um, actually, going back to what we were talking about, about the sort of the minutiae of mothering, the you know, that stuff that Naomi Stadlin notices about how, you know, the interactions between mothers and their babies okay. um so yeah this is just to give you a flavor really what page are we on uh we're on page 91 i never see mothers being congratulated for simultaneously having a conversation about hopscotch with a five-year-old while paying for the shopping wiping spit off a baby and putting the bags in the trolley no one stops her and gives her a prize for what is happening in her head Always three steps ahead of the game, planning the evening meal, making a mental note not to forget to sign that permission slip for school, working out how many nappies she has left in order to decide whether to go back into the shop or go home and wait until tomorrow. Not many people celebrate when a mother in South Sudan manages to send her children to school in pristine school uniform. Or a mother in India works hard to afford sanitary towels so her daughters can go to school. No one jumps for joy at the arithmetical skill with which she works out if she has enough money left over for a treat. And does anyone care that she is bone-deep tired, lonely and aching for adult conversation? Who celebrates with her when it's been a good day? and she's enjoying the little people? And who commiserates when the only solution feels like the comfort of a large glass of wine? Who remembers the mother whose boys go off to war? Or those who have lost their babies and carry the heavy burden of grief with them everywhere they go? Who remembers those who are struggling with other practical, financial, physical or emotional challenges? Why is it that finger painting, bottom wiping and pulling the petals off daisies is considered less important than the chief executive of a company chairing a board meeting. When I was an English teacher, a common classroom activity to stimulate discussion was the balloon debate. The balloon is losing altitude and we need to throw one person out of the basket to save the lives of everyone else. For many women, it feels like stay-at-home mum has been grabbed by the ankles and unceremoniously thrown overboard. Okay. Thank you. I think that sort of bit just sums up why I got angry enough to write the book, really. Mm. Yeah. And the balloon debate, absolutely. Some chairman of some company making some more plastic tap that none of us needs. Or the woman raising the children who are going to be chairing those companies in yes <laughs> mm, yes that metaphor didn't go where it was supposed to go did it <laughs> I was um thinking on uh, um as you're reading part of that about um who celebrates the joy and who's there when she's having a bad day 
and um, how social media kind of reflects that for us now in a way that it didn't when you and I were first parents. Yes. Yeah, we didn't have that at all, did we? We were lucky enough to have somebody over the garden fence. That was, you know, that was fantastic. And now I see social media doing um, amazingly positive things for, for mothers. It, it can be negative as well. I mean, it's only a um, reflection of the real world. Um, but I do see some in- incredible community and support and uh, good signposting going on for, for parents on social media. If you can find the circles that are reliable, yeah, it must be a very, very valuable source now. Yeah, and there's you know there's lots of um, really great stuff going on. Um, you know, groups run by breastfeeding counsellors and doulas um, and midwives, and you know, there's there is some really positive things happening. Is there anywhere you'd particularly recommend? Um, well, I'd like to do a little shout out for the developing doulas Jewin groups um so we have a i have a, a graduate from my doula uh training course developing doulas who came up with this idea of uh creating a group for each month of the calendar for the women who are due in that group and we have a um group of around 20 of us admins um, and we admin all the groups um, in a very loose way, but we plop in and we signpost, we give them useful information in order to help them make informed decisions along the way, um, offer them, uh, yeah, parenting support, feeding support, birth support as they, they go along. Uh, and they ha- have proven to be extremely successful that's great because they give each other peer support and then they've got you also providing the evidence-based backup. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Quite, so, quite a big job for you. Yes. Presumably you're doing that voluntarily. It's worth it to see how actually, you know, with just a little bit of information, you can really have a, a positive impact. Mm. There's just so much misinformation out there that to have a place you can go where you know you can ask a question, not be judged for asking it and then be given a sensible answer that doesn't undermine you. Yeah. Okay, so what's next for you, Maddie? Well, I think I'm putting a little bit of headspace into where um, I go next with my doula course. We celebrated 10 years of developing doulas in 2018 and we had a big party. Um, So having been teaching a doula course for a decade um it definitely feels like something to be proud of and that we have in that time built a really incredible community uh, of women who are all out there doing um amazing stuff there are lots of people who come through developing doulas go on to do other things they also become breastfeeding counselors or some go on into midwifery Um, And then obviously there are an awful lot of solid jobbing doulas all out there supporting parents. Um, And that it just it feels incredible to have created all of these people because, you know, I know it sounds really trite and everything, but I absolutely believe that if we want to change the world, we have to start at the beginning. And that means supporting parents to step into parenting in a way that, 
um, gives them the tools to feel uh, confident enough to respond to their babies um, and to, you know, step into a gentle birth and gentle parenting, however that might look like for them, um, feeling unconditionally and non-judgmentally supported because when you've received that, hopefully you can pass that on and the ripple effects have a discernible effect on society and the world. This very much is starting at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think we were saying earlier, weren't we, that, you know, this world that we inhabit, this birth world, it's really, really niche. Um, but that's ridiculous. It shouldn't be because we're all born and almost all of us become parents and we've all been children. Um, so it should be a completely mainstream uh, topic. Everybody should be interested in it. And everything about society is coming back to my book really that you know everyone should be interested in making the experience better for parents and for children um, because then children grow up well balanced and those children are going to be the next leaders of of the world so if every parent had a doula they trusted and their 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 instincts supported yes and you know to be honest it's not even uh, having a doula, if that ethos, if that um, ability to deeply listen to people and to um, not judge and to communicate effectively so that people can find their own solutions, if, that, if those skills were mainstream, if everybody had them, then all parents would be effectively supported by their family, their neighbours, their friends. We'd all be doulas. We've got to just keep on chipping away, doing our small thing and watching it grow, which it has grown. You've done this for 10 years. It's been amazing. Yeah, so um, I'm kind of, yeah, I think think looking at the next few years now and and where we go and um, welcoming more people into the developing doulas fold, it warms my heart, definitely. <laughs> Good. And, and may it then go on to warm many, many other hearts as a result of that. Yes, I hope so. I'd just like to do a little shout out, actually, that um, every single Developing Doulas group has a free place for a um, student midwife. So if there are any student midwives out there listening to this, uh, you're welcome to come and hang out for five days with doulas. Student midwives come and do a developing doulas course for lots of reasons. Sometimes it's because uh, you're in a bit of a dark place and you're not certain where you're going and you're finding it hard. And it's nice to just come and hang out with some like-minded people um, and have a bit of a respite. Um, sometimes it's because they want to really find out about doulas and um, what that what that might feel like to work in a birth room uh, with a doula after they're qualified. Um, and sometimes they come because they've uh, decided that they're packing it in and they need to um, find a new direction. Um, but for yeah, whatever your reason, if you fancy coming along, then just get in touch. Great. We do have student midwives who listen, so that's 
yeah, definitely one for you. And there's absolutely nothing like being surrounded by people who are passionate and caring about this subject. Just just being immersed in that group for five days would be the most wonderful experience. That's right. Great idea. So what's the website, Maddie? It's developingdoulas.co.uk. Nice and easy. Wonderful. Thank you so much for giving me a little bit of time this morning. I wish you all the best for 2019 and I hope everything grows and, and you may yet have another baby. <laughs> By which I mean book, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The real babies, uh, those years have gone. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> Thank you. You too, sweetheart. Have lots and lots of fun with broadcast this year. Yeah, we will. I've got lots of ideas. So that was—it's lovely to hear from Maddie again. I mean, she was our first ever interview, I think. She was indeed, and it's nice because I—I I think she has a a real deep insight into the challenges of of motherhood in the modern world, and I really enjoyed the the feminist framework that she used to write that book. I, and I like what she said about how suddenly it dawned on her that she was revealing something deeply intimate to her and her life. And, and I identify with that mm. because, you know, when you put something out there for general consumption, the vulnerability can be quite scary, in my experience anyway. Especially if you are not really writing for the mainstream, you know, the, the, the um, mother and baby magazine view of parenthood, the cleanness and the, the lack of inconvenience. And um, we've got coming up on a future show. I'm hoping to speak to Philippa Perry, whose book's going to be out soon. And there was something she said at the Also Festival last year. She was doing a talk called Why Are People Awful? And somebody in the audience said, why are children awful? And her response was something like, children are awful because we make them awful by trying to avoid the fact that they need us so much. And and that's not mainstream way of looking at parenting. I had 10 of my grandchildren together on Christmas Eve with with my children. And uh, it never ceases to amaze me that my children are walking in the footsteps I thought I'd covered up. And what were specific examples of that? Did you know? Well, j- just little traits of parenting that I recognise from my own style back then that I, I probably wouldn't do it that way now. OK, so you're not seeing that as a positive thing? It's a joke, really. The, the idea that children are modelling your behaviour all the time not just when you're telling them what they should or shouldn't do even if you're doing it in a full-on um i don't know uh, what am I trying to my say? own dad's um stock phrase was don't do as i do do as i say which we have have to say that we've <laughs> totally ignored throughout our entire lives <laughs> yeah well i try i try to be often full-on uh giving choices type parent but but i i notice sometimes the way i'm communicating is just making demands but with uh they appear like requests but they're really demands yeah and sometimes that's how it's it comes across in the the kind of you know those those sorts of books that talk to you about good ways of talking to your children it's like give choices that don't matter and aren't really choices do you want to wear the red jumper or the green jumper and I wonder how how obvious it is that that's a fake choice to a child. You know, I, I, I do think a good baseline foundation for parenting is treating children like people. Yeah. 
I do, but I have to say that as a parent, that has resulted in a child who thinks he's a person and has the same human rights as everyone else in the house, and that's not always the most convenient thing. Philippa Perry was right. I know, it's tricky, isn't it? My my son, I'll give him a choice sometimes uh, to help out with something. I'll say, do you want to help me with this? And he'll say no. Mm. And I get offended. Do you want to do something doesn't mean do you want to do something. It means do it now. Do you want to feed the cat? Yeah. Well, sometimes sometimes I'll say to my son, we're going here, and he'll say, I don't want to. And I'll say, the only choice you're going to have about it is your attitude. We're awful parents. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's the, it's the realities of It of is. Working. We're real and normal parents. Absolutely. Well, I am anyway. <sighs> Thanks. Tell me what... So... Go on. Go on. You... I was going to ask you, what has inspired you lately? I'm reading a book by a chap called Roy Melvin. And it's called Disillusionment. It's it's a book that explores the idea that who we think we are is not who we really are. It's a return to the theme that who we think we are is just really a collection of patterns of behaving that have been conditioned from early childhood that have some of their roots in our DNA, if you like. We've inherited it. We imagine we have free will, but actually we're just being triggered by external forces. Uh, and that who we really are is, is something way beyond just these small patterns. And I'm inspired by it. For me, it, it helps me to step back and realise that some of the things in my life that occur to me as problems, as big issues, are actually just the results of my conditioned way of thinking about a situation and and that's helpful for me what about you as i mentioned before we started recording i've read very little i've i kind of um read through maddie's book and then i've started reading philippa perry's book and i'm also reading robin ince's book which i quite like it's called um i'm a joke and so are you and it's about the psychology of comedy are you going to post that on the page i can actually yeah so that's what i'm reading um and it, it's it's an interesting book, but because I've been away a lot and I've been reading other things and I've been really, really busy marking, I'm just not getting through it as fast as I would like to. What I have been doing um, that I'm quite enjoying is I decided I was going to learn to draw. So I've been teaching myself to draw. Oh, there's a good book called Drawing on the Left Side of the Brain. Okay, well, I'll have a look for that. Thank you. Yeah, well worth reading because it explores drawing in a very different way because she argues that drawing is about seeing mm-hmm. that we that those of us that draw poorly are actually not drawing what we see we're drawing what we imagine we see yeah that's very much how i've i've been sort of thinking about it from what i've been reading and learning yeah drawing on the left side of the brain you'll love that it's a classic thank you yeah i i had a goal of learning to write with my left hand as well as i write with my right why? Well, uh, why not? Oh, okay, good. Good for you. How's it going? <laughs> well, I think it came from reading a book by Moshe Fendelkrist, and and he talks about habituation of muscle movements, and and how beginning to use your left hand to write just evokes lots of neural activity in the brain. That, mm. that leads to novelty, if you like, in how you perceive your environment. Well, interesting. 
Well, it's gone very quickly, Karen. That's all we've got time for for today. So let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave a review on iTunes and get yourself off to the Patreon page and uh, support us. You've just done all my bits, Mark. Did I? <laughs> oh. Yeah, don't worry about it. It's fine. Don't worry. Do some more. So, yeah, facebook.com slash Sprogcast, at Sprogcast on Twitter, um, Patreon slash Sprogcast. You can check us out in lots of different places. And we love to hear from you. You spend lots of time hearing from us. Let's do it the other way around. And when you get your T-shirt, post a picture. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code SPROGCAST at the checkout.